So I'm, I'm pleased to explore compassion for a second week. Last week when I came originally, I was just going to, since I had three weeks, I was going to do compassion in one week, joy in another, and wrap it all up with equanimity in a week. But I thought that was a little bit quick, and I, uh, particularly in doing the practice. So I'm glad that we can have a second week uh, with compassion practice. And how many people gave a little more focus to compassion practice, both formal practice and how it might uh, be expressed in daily life? How many gave a little more attention to that in the last week? That's, that's good. So we can, about half, so we can, we can compare notes. Um, so I mentioned last time that I was inspired to explore this territory of compassion, joy, and equanimity uh, in large part because for the whole month of February I was on retreat and I did these practices along with metta practice uh, for a month, you know, which meant I did compassion practice for about a week, more or less all day long, you know, doing what we did for about 15 minutes, about whatever, 15 hours <laughs> a day. And, um, and was inspired to uh, continue to explore the territory. And also, we explored here in January, we explored loving-kindness for three weeks. And so there's a way in which by uh, whatever, maybe uh, sometime in April, we will have given considerable attention to these four so-called divine abodes, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, especially joy in the joy of others, and equanimity, which is this beautiful framework, I think a very, very subtle teaching about how the awakened mind and heart has its expression in all four of these simultaneously. And I was mentioning last time, one of my most uh, continual insights and uh, understandings was how these four uh, interpenetrate each other and how mature expressions of each of these have to include all the others. It's a very interesting, uh, it's a very interesting perspective and it makes a lot of sense of why compassion is hard to develop, whether in the helping professions or in daily life, that if it doesn't have the other three in some way integrated, it will tend to get caught and distorted. And I'll talk more about that. So today I want to uh, give some uh, further exploration of the meaning of compassion practice as an individual practice. And I also want to expand to explore two other areas, the development of compassion more in we might say, in the world, in our relationships, and in the larger social world, second area. And then thirdly, the relationship particularly between compassion and wisdom. So those are my three areas that I want to explore uh, this morning. So I mentioned how the word for compassion in the Pali language, which is the language that the Buddha's discourses were recorded in, in very similar to Sanskrit, is the, the word is karuna, K-A-R-U-N-A. And uh, you also, those of you who've done retreats know, that our retreat buildings are named after the four Brahma Vihara, 
Brahmavihara is again a word that could be translated as divine abodes, or uh, 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 vihara just means home or abode, and Brahma means the king of the gods. So it's the when we do these practices and invoke these states, we're living as if we were gods and goddesses. So this is god and goddess practice we're doing. So <coughs> very suitable for human beings, and. Uh, very suitable for people who don't believe in gods or goddesses. You can have your own. You can really think of this. It's sometimes translated as the sublime abidings. You know, these. Uh, that's another another translation of that. And so the the term karuna literally means the quivering of the heart when there is suffering, whether one's own suffering or another's. And it's taken that this is a very natural way that human beings work and indeed that other sentient beings work, that when we're in the presence of suffering, our hearts open. Unless we are somewhat fearful, anxious, or deluded, which tends to be the case for most of us a good deal of the time. (laughs) So, Hence the need for practice. <laughs> so, uh, but it is take. It's helpful to see that we're not producing some complicated religious or spiritual, uh, you know, superstructure. That it's more that we're actually, in, in more in a sense, uh, seeing what stands in the way of that open heart, namely the fear, the anxiety, the delusion, and that we have to work through that to a large extent for compassion to blossom more fully. In that compassion is the uh, natural response of the open heart to suffering and to, to uh, painful experiences. To be able to be present with suffering goes against our conditioning. And that's why it's actually not so easy. As we were seeing, I think, in the question from from Jane, uh, we find it difficult to open up to suffering. We more typically want to get rid of it. And that's our conditioning. And so compassion practice directly goes against our conditioning. And for that reason, it will often be difficult. We come right up against our conditioning, our resistance, our wanting something else. And there's a way in which we uh, have to learn, and this is part of what we learn simply in the mindfulness practice, we have to learn that we will survive being with uh, pain or suffering in a way in which we open to it. And we have to learn indeed that it is in the long run can be uh, more transformative and actually way less suffering if we learn how to open to suffering. That is, in a sense, a revolutionary teaching. That's some of what we get. There's a very beautiful poem uh, by Rumi, which I would like to read to you, which really expresses this in, in both a deep and a humorous way. So let me see. It's a poem called, it's actually an excerpt from a poem called The Question. Do you know that Rumi, this Muslim poet, is the best-selling poet in the United States, even under George Bush. That was true. (laughs) Do you know that? Isn't that interesting? So, 
we should remind Barack Obama of that. <laughs> so um, this is from Rumi. One dervish to another. What was your vision of God's presence? Response. I haven't seen anything. But for the sake of conversation, I'll tell you a story. God's presence is there in front of me, a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire, another towards the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the sweet stream. A head goes under on the water surface, that head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and they end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are treated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire. I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. (laughs) So, there is that willingness that we cultivate to go into it. And when we do the, the compassion practice, one of the, one of the qualities I think is very helpful in terms of learning this, for, in terms of our mindfulness practice and our compassion practice, is that we actually go into the fire in small ways many, many, many times. You know, that this kind of practice is not some big cathartic thing where we suddenly go into this intense pain and have to hang out with it for like, uh, you know, five hours or ten days and kind of, you know, it's not like walking on coals for all night or something. Um, But rather, the practice that we do is being with something that's difficult or painful, involves suffering for small periods of time, many, many, many times. It seems to be, for many people, a very effective way to learn. So we don't get a huge, you know, shock to our system, but we get some small shocks that we can deal with, that we have the capacity to work with. And over time, tremendous learning can happen. That's, it seems, how this practice works. So we learn how to open to what's difficult. And in that sense, we go against this very pervasive conditioning, which is uh, a personal conditioning, it's a social conditioning. The leaders of our society do not like to go into what's difficult and painful. Uh, and it, it, it actually make, in my view, it, it holds us back tremendously. We don't want to deal with the suffering. We don't want to deal with the legacy of uh, Native American genocide or racism. You know, we don't want to deal with it and hence the effects continue, I, I would say. That's my, my own reading of that. And so, uh, <laughs> There can be great healing possible when we actually go into the painful territory. You know, culturally speaking as well as personally speaking. It's not as if we, uh, it's not as if it's not there. It's more attending to what's actually present. So in the meditation, we learn how to attend to what's, what's uh, 
what's present, and we come over time to open to what's difficult in the compassion practice. In our mindfulness practice, we open to what's difficult and compassion naturally arises. I sit, you know, I may sit here this morning and I've had a difficult time, let's say, with a friend or with a a co-worker, and I sit with it and I feel my distress. And if I can actually open to it and just be with that, I may have some compassion for myself or for my co-worker or my friend or for both of us. And it, it develops naturally when we just can have that quality of openness. So in the long run, our willingness to be with pain, as I think was suggested by the Rumi poem, brings gifts. That actually opening to pain, opening to suffering, brings gifts of understanding, it brings gifts of compassion, it can bring gifts of connection with others. And these are what are really part of the process of developing compassion. Another poem from Rilke, who talks about, and he knew this very personally, he talked about the ways that opening to what was difficult and painful brought gifts. He said it this way, Let my hidden weeping arise and blossom. How dear you will be to me then, you nights of anguish. Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you, inconsolable sisters, and surrendering lose myself in your loosened hair? How we squander our hours of pain. How we gaze beyond them into the bitter duration to see if they have an end though they are really our winter enduring foliage, our dark evergreen, one season in our inner year. How we squander our hours of pain. So it's again, not to deliberately uh, cause more pain, but where there is pain and suffering to be able to open to it. When we do so, we find that really compassion has two main uh, qualities. One more inner and one more moving outward. That it's much like the uh, beautiful painting here, uh, uh, which is of uh, a relative of Kuan Yin and of Elokitasvera, who is uh, an expression of compassion and a a protector. This is, uh, for a long time I thought this was Avalokitesvara, but it's not. It's someone who's a little less known, Usnisa Sitata Putra. (laughs) And there's a little description of some of uh, her qualities. But she has the qualities both of what we might call an empathic compassion and also a responsive compassion. I think it's helpful to think of compassion in these two ways. Partly compassion is actually an inner feeling of, that can be empathic, that I can be with my own suffering or be with the suffering of another and feel it. It's really the literal meaning in English of compassion is to be with suffering, compassion. <coughs> passion, originally in the language, referring to the passion of Jesus on the cross. You know, it's called a passion. It's really 
translated directly as suffering. So it's to be with suffering. So there's the quality of can I be with my own suffering and feel a kind of empathy? Can I be with another's suffering and in a sense be taken in to that person's experience and be able to hold it and be present with it, but feel it directly, not be, uh, what, uh, knocked around by it necessarily. And our training is to be able to increasingly be able to be with our suffering or another's suffering. And sometimes we may get from ourselves or from others suffering that's too much for us to be with. Now that's real. But we train really to hold, in a sense, more and more and to be able to be present with others' suffering. So there's the more receptive suffering of empathy and there's the more active, uh, what I say, the more receptive compassion. There's the more receptive compassion of empathy and there's the more active compassion that responds. I think it's helpful to see that for uh, Usnisa Sitata Putra, <laughs> it's to have a thousand arms and on each of the hands there's an eye. That's the receptive dimension. And then the arms are able to act. That's the active dimension. So it's helpful to look at our compassion in those two ways. It has those two aspects. Another helpful framework that comes from the Buddha is to remember that there are what he called for each of the Brahma-vihara, there are near enemies and far enemies. This is again, I think, a very subtle teaching. He said there are qualities or there are uh, almost like imitations of compassion that look something like compassion but are not really compassion. He said this was the case of all of the divine abodes of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. So, for example, for loving kindness, the near enemy that kind of looks like it is very attached love. It looks like that more unconditional love, but it's kind of attached and has conditions. It can look like, oh, I'm being really loving, but it's not really the same quality as metta. The near enemy of compassion that was talked about in the uh, ancient text was something like pity, which uh, comes from a distance. We think ourselves superior to the person. This is very common if we have work in the helping professions or uh, teaching or really that comes very easy to come up where it's not true compassion because there's some sense of distance, difference. It may come out of aversion. You know, if we're in the helping professions, we may take ourselves to be a superior distanced place, partly to help us not to feel so much. And so when we do the compassion practice, we look out for the near enemies. The far enemy is more obvious. It's cruelty. The far enemy of compassion is simply cruelty, of having some, actually can be some sense even of pleasure in others' suffering. You know, the German have a word which doesn't exist in English. Some of you know it's a schadenfreude. You know that word? The Germans have. It's... I don't know why we don't have it in English and why they have it in German, but that's for sociologists to determine. But, but it means literally pleasure in the, in the pain of others. Uh, and cruelty is like that. I, th- I think that there are actually some other um, near enemies 
that are very close to pity. And I think you know, you know pity, right? Pity is when you look at someone's suffering and there's kind of a condescending tone. It, and it, it, people think that they're being compassionate. I heard one story from someone who some of you may know named Daniel Barnes, who, is, uh, who uh, has been in a wheelchair for a long time. And he told the story of being in a supermarket in a wheelchair and someone coming up to him and saying, I admire you for persevering, you know. If it was me in your situation, I would kill myself. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> right, so that, that person probably thought I'm being compassionate, but was caught in the near enemy, you see. So we want to look out for that. I think on reflection, one of what's been interesting to me is to realize that there are actually multiple near enemies. We could, and we can probably think of this by thinking of people who are with um, suffering a lot, people in the helping professions. It might turn into burnout. You know, it can kind of look like compassion, but it's actually somewhat burned out. And that may be in large part because the other three of the divine abodes are not present sufficiently. There's not enough joy. So people in the helping professions need to cultivate the joy to balance out the being with the suffering. Or there may not be enough wisdom. They might get out of balance. You know? So there can be burnout. There can be maybe a sense of uh, bitterness. The suffering can just be a little bit overwhelming. And that's where we would need to cultivate the other three to balance it out. Or there might be some, as a helper, there might be a sense of identification, you know, Again, I'm a really, um, I'm a really, I'm a professionally compassionate person. I'm really, um, I'm really together, and I can deal with suffering, you know. And again, that that could be a distortion uh, if it, if that identification tends to lead to actual sense of separation and not really feeling what's there. And so we want to look in terms of the compassion for where when the near enemies or the far enemies appear when we're doing the practice. And so we, again, can do the compassion practice as the formal practice that we did at the end of the sitting. And we can also do it in just these multiple ways that really uh, are expressing either the more receptive or the more active dimension of compassion. Simply, when we are with someone who's telling telling us something about pain or suffering or distress, and we sit with it, that's compassion practice. And we can notice what happens. When we meditate and we have our own pain come up, we can see what we do with that. That's compassion practice. We can also bring the compassion practice out into the world, you know, which is the, the second uh, broad area I wanted to talk about this morning. We can bring it out into the world in very, very ordinary ways. It can simply be to... Um, deliberately be with some of our friends or family members or community members who have some difficulty or distress, you know, and say that this is important for me to have, make a priority to, to do that, you know, and it's, it's hard. We get busy, you know, and sometimes not being with those who are suffering uh, gets lost. I know that's sometimes the case for me. And so to deliberately um, act in that in that way. We can, for example, respond to the current economic situation and 
I was, I was inspired to get an email from uh, Michael Lerner, some of you know, who works with uh, Takoon and uh, a synagogue in San Francisco called Beit Takoon. And he, I think, and is very articulate about how to bring compassion into everyday life in relation to the larger social issues. So, so he sent out an email called Helping Each Other Out During the Economic Meltdown. That's a very simple compassion action. So he, one of the things he did was he said, let us uh, circulate uh, the names and capacities of people who need a little more work, who are very skilled and talented but don't have enough work, and let us distribute this to our community. I don't know what Spirit Rock is doing yet in terms of the community, but something like that would be very appropriate. You know, to, to actually find ways to respond to, um, to the economic distress and what's happening with people. It's one of the very striking things that I felt coming out of retreat for a month where we were not given daily you know, Dow Jones updates on, on retreat. Uh, and coming out, and I think a few days after I came out, I had uh, a group. I have a, a group that meets twice a week, or twice a month, I should say, just an ongoing uh, sitting group. And uh, people came and there was tremendous sense of economic distress. One person had lost a job, two other people who were a couple had canceled a retreat because they didn't think they could afford it economically. And I, and I hearing from other people in the news, the sense of anxiety is very high. It was very, you know, it was very palpable coming out of retreat. could really feel like it's just this energy, this, uh, this buzz almost. And, and how do we respond to that? You know, so there are more, we can respond very personally, interpersonally. We can also respond more socially. Another way is learning how to be skillful when there's uh, pain, let's say, in an uh, interpersonal situation or a family situation or a group. Uh, and there actually are ways to work with that. What's often the case because of our conditioning is that when pain occurs in a relational context, people don't want to go there. Now, this may be different with many of us, but it's also very common. Think of an organization. How do organizations deal with the pain that's there? And there's a lot of pain now, sometimes from people being laid off or whatever, or organizations uh, constricting and so forth. And there's... um, there are ways, actually, to be skillful with pain. I, I was thinking of one in particular, where, which I experienced uh, several years ago, and uh, which I write about in some length in, in the, the book that I did two years ago called The Engaged Spiritual Life. It was an experience with a nonprofit organization, a social change organization, that was having major conflicts going on. There were, there were um, people fired, there was a new director who was not working so well, it seemed. There was conflict between the board and the director, the director and the staff. Some people thought that this organization, which had been around for a long time, done a lot of good work, would have to close. They could not really very well access their pain. They, could, they were stuck. Everything was frozen. I think you know that situation, probably, in, in situations. And I was with Joanna Macy who was invited 
to help work with the situation. And she did a practice, very simple practice, which is one of the beautiful practices that she teaches. And uh, any of you who have a chance to work with her, she's one of the great teachers of our time. She's 80 now or, or so. So um, as of now, she and I and a friend named Lawrence Ellis are planning a seven-day retreat about a year from now here. Up, up the hill, so you can be on the lookout for that. Um, but she has a practice which is, has a number of practices which really uh, help people to open to pain and thereby invoke compassion. And with this organization, she first had people together, they were in a home and I was, I was there. There were about 30 people, things were kind of tense. There were people who were fired, there were the people who had fired them in the same room. It was a difficult situation. And she had people gathered together and she had them first go to gratitude and appreciation. Before they went into the hard stuff, they went into gratitude and appreciation for the organization. We can understand this in terms of Brahma Vihara. She was invoking joy as being necessary before they went into uh, compassion, before they went into suffering and evoke compassion, and saying we need that balancing quality of joy to be able to enter the suffering as an organization. So we did about half an hour of appreciations, which really a lot of people had forgotten why they liked the organization. That's what happens when there's suffering, right? They had forgotten. They said, oh, oh yeah, it's a pretty good place. <laughs> you know, not bad. Oh, oh yeah, that's, boy, that's deep. That can really help the world. People had forgotten that. They just, why did that person... They get stuck on that, right? And so they did that. And then they, then she invited people to do a practice called the Truth Mandala, which is a practice where there's a circle in the middle and there are five, there are basically five places to sit. In the middle there's a cushion and then there are four quadrants and one quadrant has a rock which symbolizes fear and the closed heart. There are also dry leaves in another quadrant which symbolizes uh, sadness or sorrow. There's an empty bowl in another quadrant which symbolizes uh, confusion or not knowing. And there's a stick in a fourth quadrant which symbolizes anger. And people are invited to go into that circle and simply express what they've been experiencing. It's a way to see a lot of pain and suffering. And they go into the circle and they pick up a stick and they express anger. But it's contained and heard. And after everyone has been, in, after a person's been in the circle, all people say is, we hear you. No commentary, just we hear you. So people did that for about an hour and a half. You know, and you can go to all four and you can stay in there. People stayed in there for a few minutes, you know, up to a few minutes. And people were crying. And there's a tremendous amount happening. And basically the ice was broken. And simply the expression of how people were suffering touched the hearts of these people. And actually it permitted the ice to be broken and for things actually to move. And things actually moved after that and were successfully dealt with by the skillful way of opening up to suffering, which is really to permit compassion. Not easy. But I think as we train here, we may be more skillful. It may just be interpersonally. It may just be with a smaller situation to be able to do that. 
all sorts of ways to do that. Sometimes it's just to set up a situation where people listen to each other. You don't have to have empty bowls and dry leaves and sticks, you know, just to have a situation where people listen, listen openly. Most situations where peacemakers come into to, uh, situations of pain, the primary tool is having people listen to what's happened without commentary. Very, very powerful tool. So let me, let me make... There's a lot more I could say about ways of working to develop compassion in that social context. There are all sorts of ways. I think the basic tool is to create different methods that open up people to witness the suffering, to be able to hear the suffering on the assumption that our hearts, when we're not scared, are good. So there's a deep faith, ultimately, in human nature that's behind compassion practices, whether individual or more more social. So the last piece I wanted to say is a little bit about the relationship between compassion and wisdom. And as we've seen, developing compassion does need uh, its grounding in the other three, in particularly, I would say, in joy and wisdom. So some of you may say, okay, I'm doing compassion practice. I really feel like I'd like to do a lot of joy practice, so that'd be fine. Those, some of you want to drop compassion practice instantly and just do joy practice for the next six months. Very, that's okay. Because it's really important to have that kind of balance of mind. Sometimes we get weighed down by suffering and we need to work with, need to work with that joy. You know, particularly if our minds are, tend to be aversive. Some of us, including myself, have minds which tend to focus on the problems. Joy practice is tremendous for us. <laughs> really, really good. And, so, and the wisdom dimension is also really, really crucial to bring in, to balance, to balance uh, the compassion in some way. And I found that doing compassion practice for the week that I was doing it. I would be doing compassion practice towards a given person, and I would find that I needed, you know, that my mind naturally went towards, I would offer, may you be free of suffering, and may you be free of the roots of suffering. And I would also sometimes have an understanding, here are the conditions, here are the factors, here, are, here is the history, and that's real. And I have, a little paradoxically, both the wish that the suffering might be transformed and the understanding that it may take a while or that there are major factors which can't simply be ignored. Hold both at the same time. A little bit paradoxical. doesn't initially, logically, all fit so easily, right? Can you feel that? May you be, may you be free of suffering. On the other hand, <laughs> you know, there, there, there's, there's the history, there's the reality. So both at the same time, not choosing one or the other. Holding, it's a creative tension that I think is very, very rich. And so in the context of uh, Brahma-vihara practice, the wisdom dimension especially comes in through equanimity. We do equanimity practice, and we'll be doing that in a few weeks. In the main equanimity practice that I do is to repeat the line, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. (coughs) And so the Brahma-vihara practice, we both wish, and then we say, no matter what I wish, things are as they are. Both, not just one. If we only do the equanimity practice, we'll tend to be imbalanced. 
we get hung, we tend to be probably a little bit distanced. So it's both, both the, the invocation. It's a very powerful connection. It's really the open heart connected with the mind of wisdom. It's often expressed, as I mentioned last time, as one of the most succinct ways to express this whole teaching that we do. That it's effectively compassion and wisdom, wisdom and compassion. We have to bring them together. They're the two wings of the Dharma, it's said. The Dharma is a word that flies with the wings of wisdom and compassion. There's a beautiful passage, let me see where this is, which from, actually two beautiful passages from the uh, Tibetan tradition which express this need. One of them is from Padmasambhava, who's the founder of Tibetan Buddhist, an Indian teacher who came to Tibet and is uh, very much revered. And he is, let me see, he, he says this, he was, he was a wisdom teacher who insisted on compassion. This is what he said. Though my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. It's from about the uh, 8th century, 8th or 9th century. And when he was talking about the law of karma, he really is meaning that's where the compassion comes in. Cause and effect and the fact that there's suffering. He's saying that this wise big view has to be combined with uh, attention to... uh, to compassion. Though my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a gray of, grain of barley flour. Another passage also from very similar tradition. This is from uh, one of the great uh, Indian uh, siddhas or, or tantric teachers named Saraha. He said this about the the need to combine. He was expressing the wisdom dimension in terms of the teaching of emptiness, the sense that there's no solid self or no solid object anywhere. That that sometimes challenging teaching of not self, or another way to think about it is interdependence, that we're not quite as separate and solid as we think. Not for another day to explore in detail. (laughs) And we have, actually. we, We, I think, last... Fall, we did. We had several, quite a number of sessions. Here's what he said. Without compassion, the view of emptiness will never lead you to the sublime path. Yet meditating solely on compassion, you remain within, within samsara. Meaning if you're only focused on compassion, you lose the wisdom dimension. So how could you be free? But one who comes to possess both of these will neither in samsara nor in nirvana dwell. That's kind of Buddhist language. He's basically saying don't get hung up by trying to transcend and don't get hung up trying not to transcend. So they're paradox, paradoxical language. What does this mean concretely? It's kind of, we would say, highfalutin language to use a technical term I learned in the hills of Virginia. <laughs> what, is, what does that mean? Uh, I had a group last night with the program uh, that I direct uh, in the Path of Engagement, which is a two-year training program to bring together inner work with uh, social service and social action. And we were 
talking, I think, we eventually were talking very much about what this very kind of deep teaching of wisdom and compassion looks like in practice, some very ordinary ways that it manifests. And so, for example, some people were talking about how can I be in a situation where there's a conflict? And I noticed that you know, one person was saying, here's some of my bosses or some people actually who have a lot of authority are in, in their leadership trips and they're projecting and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And I can sit there and I don't get hooked by it and I can feel compassion for them. So it's the, the not being hooked is part of the wisdom quality. It's not getting, because hooked means getting turned into an opposition. I'm here, they're there, we're in a polarization, we're in opposition. That's what we might say is a solidification of self. That's really what the sense of, of uh, emptiness is pointing to. Can I just see this as here's what's happening, here's, you know, this person is angry, this person is deluded in this moment. And can I be there and hold the place of compassion? Can I be another person who is a doctor was talking about can I be with people's pain and complaining and still keep compassion without getting hooked by it? Because it's not so easy. Because they might be complaining about the doctor. right? Mm-hmm. Can I be with that complaining and the pain and not get hooked and still have compassion? And so we really had this very interesting exploration of these very ordinary ways that this very deep teaching can express itself. It's can I be with the reactivity, the complaining, the projection, the acting out of others, and see it clearly and still have a heart of compassion. I think we do that quite a bit, actually. But we can think of that as kind of the training that we're doing, kind of the edge of our learning. To better, and we might go into a situation and say, let me try to do that. Let me, here's this person who I know is reactive a lot. Can I be there and actually notice the reactivity, not be so caught by it? This is practice, training and also work to have my heart still stay open. That's a way to make this very deep teaching about wisdom and compassion very every day. It may simply mean to be with a co-worker and notice where we get hooked usually and see if we can notice that, let it go a little bit and stay open to the person complaining. That's it. That's the practice. So I think I will end with a passage, there's a very nice book I've been reading some for these weeks by the Dalai Lama called The Compassionate Life. I thought I'd just finish with this reading from him. True compassion is not just an emotional response, but a firm commitment. Because of this firm foundation, a truly compassionate attitude towards others does not change even if they behave negatively. Genuine compassion is based not on our own projections and expectations, but rather on the needs of the other, irrespective of whether another person is a close friend or an enemy, as long as that person wishes for peace and happiness and wishes to overcome suffering. Then on that basis, we develop genuine concern for their problems. This is genuine compassion. From a, for a Buddhist practitioner, the goal is to develop this genuine compassion, the genuine wish for the well-being of another, in fact, for every living being throughout the universe. Of course, developing this kind of passion is not at all easy. So let's just sit for 30 seconds or a minute.
we have some time for discussion or reflections or questions, please. And then you say your name before. My name's Lavinia, and I've been um, deeply for years examining this place of compassion from two perspectives. Um, when I lived in the Bay Area before, I was often involved in studies that would uncover what was difficult that a community would not would deny. Yeah. So homelessness is an example that, you know, 15 years ago there were studies that people were becoming homeless not because it was their fault and that it wasn't substance abuse and all families were being derailed. Yeah. And then I was part of a study where we found that children in a community that is enormously wealthy were coming to school not eating breakfast not because they didn't eat breakfast but because their families couldn't afford it. Yeah. So... I've been examining compassion at what place it is a call for action. Yeah, yeah. And when you were speaking about the economy, recently I started with my Congo meditation. Tonglen? Tonglen, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I would first, you know, call my own suffering and then extend recognition that there are a lot of themes with this suffering. Yeah. And now I've added a third place, which is a prayer that we can come together to look at the suffering as something universal that we can find the power to solve. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I've become very aware of without judgment is you've talked a lot about when compassion could mean cruelty or compassion isn't authentic. Mm-hmm. And um, in communities right now, I think Paul is really like what you told with that story of working with Joanna Macy, which is, I'm wondering, were these people convening with the intention to heal the suffering? Yeah. Because that, to me, is a whole new layer of compassion when you convene as a community to heal the suffering. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Lavinia. And, uh, yeah, it seems that a starting point is just to somehow hear what's happening, which I think is occurring to some extent, you know, or to, you know, to have it happen locally or nationally. Because I think a lot, and this is where the media is so important, because when we hear collectively about suffering, there's a natural intention to respond. And so a lot of the problem is that the newspapers are very selective about which suffering matters. Right? I mean... It's been quite a policy. The U.S. government does the same thing. And so, so I think having simply a chance for people to speak about what they're experiencing, have a local forum would be very important. Have it on the, on the radio or on the television and so forth. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's tremendous amount to be done. You know, and we can also, I think, again, being inspired by Michael Lerner, there's a lot we can do in the wider Spirit Rock community, as well as uh, in in our local communities. So, um, yeah, may may good organizing occur. May good organizing occur. (laughs) Please, yeah. and I'm mostly housebound, and my trip to the grocery store is my big 
social event each day, mm. and um, you know I've I've met different folks and I run into them again. And one of them is a an obese man in a wheelchair with an oxygen tank, and he's kind of um, 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 opened a conversation with me. He's kind of abrupt, sort of like "Hey you," and he mm -hmm. leaves without saying goodbye. And he likes to tell me, you know, which kind of filtered water to use and whether microwaves are hurting the food. He's contentious. Mm -hmm. And I have this sense when I leave, my gosh, um, I wish I could help that guy. He's probably, you know, doesn't seem like it could be that, that fun to be him. Uh, but when I'm with him, um, I have no idea how to bring some kind of different flavor to it. I just sort of let him bring this whole contentious flavor. I don't know how to mm. open our hearts or something. I, I'm not sure how to approach him. I, I see him a lot lately. Yeah, um, well, it sounds like there is a lot of compassion going on. I mean, that's what I'm hearing. Uh, it might be related to those stories I told right at the end. If you, see, you can do his contentious dance with him without having contention in your heart. Uh, not, maybe not so easy, but I think, you, can, you know, prob maybe, does that make sense? Yeah. You know, it's like, be, you can't, say, okay, I'll talk with you if you're not contentious, but can enter in his territory, but, you know, maybe not feed it if it's negative. But I, I notice that with people sometimes, that if they can be very negative, and I can, you know, I, I told stories like when I was doing a lot of my own personal judgment practice, and looking at my own judgments, a lot of it is touching the pain that's connected with judgments. And I get very interested in being with judgmental people. And I used to seek them out. <laughs> and just to be with them, it didn't last for that long, but it, 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 it was happening. And, but I would actually tune into the pain. And they'd be just being judgmental, and I would tune in a different way. And I really, it was, it was very, very interesting. And so there, there may be ways to be with people, even if they're whatever, politically incorrect or whatever language we want to use or doing that. Does that, that make some sense? Yeah. Yeah, please, maybe one or two more and then we'll have to finish. Please. Yeah. I think one of the unfortunate responses we have when compassion is needed yeah. is to say, think positively. Yeah. I mean, it's used so much and it trivializes yeah, it's a good point. Everyone here that one of she says one of the what was the language you use? One of the unfortunate aspects. aspects is more conditioned. It's almost like like a variant of a near enemy of compassion mm -hmm. is to uh, tell someone think positively, and people are probably doing the best they can with that situation, but it may you know the. Uh, person may want to really feel met with with the pain. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a one-size-fits-all response. Oh, I see, yeah. Instead of really connecting. Not really meeting the person. It may just, and, and it may come out of the person's, you know, it could come out of a lot of sources. It may come out of the person who's making the comment being afraid of actually touching the suffering. You know, so that's where our own practice is so important, and to just notice when we're with uh, 
certain people. Am I afraid of coming closer? And that's okay. But that's why it's all a practice. We just notice it. Am I afraid of this suffering? You know, and can I open to it a little bit? You know, uh, let's see. I think we had just one more and then we'll have to have to close. Please, it was... Um, it's how important it is to realize that you can't change that other person. Yeah. And that if you can really uh, take that in and really understand that you can't change that person, and instead you can, um, I think it opens the door for being more compassionate. Yeah, yeah that, that um, we may be able to do things which are skillful or may actually help lessen the, lessen the suffering, but in a deep way, it's that person's suffering. Is that something like what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. And so we actually may do things which could be part of the person's transformation process. But, uh, but in some ways, if we get attached to that person, you know, okay, I've been doing compassion practice for you for the last two weeks, and you haven't changed at all. You know? <laughs> Get it together, <laughs> you know. Uh, so that that's that's a sign to look uh, look at oneself, but and and to really see that uh, a large part of the compassion practice is shifting our attitude. I do think that it can have a an effect, you know, on a person or a situation, but it also can have a big effect on ourselves. And maybe the most obvious effect sometimes can be on our own attitude, how we approach situations. So we could um, easily continue this exploration for another hour or two, but for com- out of compassion for those who need to leave soon, uh, I'll just uh, bring us to a close in a moment. And uh, I think we will, I would suggest we do the compassion practice this week, continue with that. We'll have some time to check in about the compassion practice and I'll introduce next week the joy practice. Okay, if people are saying yes. <laughs> I'll introduce the joy practice. If you want to get a head start on it, some of you may know Sharon Salzberg's book on loving kindness, which has instructions on all of the four. But I'll give some further guidance on uh, joy, and we'll, we'll work with that. But I think for the next week, it's very nice to continue the compassion practice in its both, uh, and you know, in, in its many, many forms, formal practice, practice in everyday life, uh, receptive, active, and so forth, and um, and and to continue even beyond. If you want to stabilize this, you may want to do a little bit every day for the next month or two, just to have this be. I found from doing a month that it was a very helpful way to have it, just almost like get. Uh, brought into my nervous system in a, in, a, in a deeper way that makes it a little more accessible. So I'm more likely just in the flow of daily life to have something happen. Oh, oh, compassion practice. You know, that's kind of the idea. That's part of why we do this. So we're more likely to, to uh, have it rise up very naturally without having to think a lot about it. Let's just sit for a minute or so and you can bring to mind your intentions for the next week. Any insights or understandings that may have come in the last uh, few hours related to the theme of compassion or perhaps something completely different?
So we recognize in closing that we do this practice and this exploration not just for ourselves but for others. And we offer the benefits of our time, of our practice, outward, beyond the confines of this building, beyond the confines of Spirit Rock, out into the world for the benefit and healing and transformation and freedom of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.